This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello, this is uh, Matt Martin. Welcome to another Trauma Cast. Uh, we've got a, a great topic today. We're going to be talking about uh, active shooter scenarios, uh, as well as the uh, Hartford Consensus Conference and, and recommendations. I'm your moderator. I have uh, two of my co-moderators here, David Morris and Levi Proctor. And today we'll be talking to uh, two guests. Uh, first is Dr. Alex Eastman, who's the Trauma Medical Director at Parkland, and he's also a Lieutenant and Deputy Medical Director at the Dallas Police and Dr. Ahmad Huck, who's an active duty Army surgeon. He's also a director of the Simulation Center at Madigan Army Medical Center. Uh, so Alex and Ahmad, thanks a lot for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, so just to start off real quickly, why don't you just tell us why you're here, uh, You know how, how uh, you came to have an interest or expertise in this topic. We'll start with you, Alex. Yeah, sure. So thanks, Matt. So I uh, have probably the best job in the world in a dual role as a trauma surgeon at Parkland and a Dallas police officer lieutenant presently assigned to our SWAT team. So I've spent the better part of the last decade uh, being an operational member of the Dallas Police Department SWAT team, which is uh, a busy urban law enforcement special operations team that's charged with doing all sorts of things. Over that time, obviously the threats that we face have evolved, and we have now come to really focus our attention on what seems to be uh, the sort of next public health uh, slash law enforcement uh, challenge, which is the provision of effective hemorrhage control when we have uh, what's become a uniquely American problem. I'll, I often joke that this is as uh, uniquely American as as baseball, apple pie, and tackle football. We sort of corner the market on the active shooter. And, and Ahmad, I know you've uh, been very interested in uh, training and simulation and preparing people for uh, some of these scenarios. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the role of simulation, obviously, is to try to take uh, try to take the uh, lessons learned and the the principles from the consensus conferences and put them in the act, into action, so that uh, when we we put our, we put the trainees or learners in the environment, it is an active learning environment, realistic with realistic stressors, uh, so that they can be best prepared to to react and and use those principles uh, in a, in a realistic environment. I mean, how much of a risk is this, especially as healthcare professionals? Uh, you know, is that a is that a common place to have uh, in active shooter scenarios, or, or are we uh, a really low risk occupation or setting? Alex, well, we'll start with yeah, you. I think you know, there's a number of ways to look at this, and I think that these are relatively low frequency but high profile events. Uh, if you look at the numbers over the last decade or so, uh, we're approaching you know close to 200 active shooter events worldwide, uh, and if you the interesting thing about that, though, is they are—they seem to be increasing both in frequency and in severity. And so, when you look at these events, you know the the idea is that we're discussing active shooter today, but the principles and the the ideas that you uh, that you incorporate into your response are useful in all sorts of other intentional mass casualty events as well. I mean, a great example is the Boston Marathon bombing. And so, as we get further into this, and we get further into the nuts and bolts of the discussion. 
um, you'll see that that uh, the same ideas, same hammer control principles that we're advocating for law enforcement officers and first responders, and ultimately for the public, can be applied in a number of different situations. With regards to the healthcare topic in particular, um, violence against healthcare providers in the workplace is is on the rise. There were at least ten high-profile shootings in healthcare facilities across the United States last year, uh, with with a couple of physicians in the last years, a couple of surgeons, in fact, having been killed in their workplace. So, you know, I, I think it's um, it, it's a topic that we often think of the hospital as well prepared to deal with. But you'll see as we get into the nuts and bolts, I think that's actually not the case. Sure. So, so Ahmad, uh, so is this is this something we should be training everyone in the healthcare setting? Should we be, uh, you know, wasting our time or using using valuable time uh, to train for this, or should we be focusing on other priorities? That's a great question, Matt. I think uh, I think recognizing that these are these are low frequency but potentially high impact uh, events. Uh, these are these are the type of scenarios that we actually use and 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 get the get pretty good bang for a buck for training for. Frequently, uh, active shooter scenarios are, are reserved for you know the hospital security forces or whoever the security office whoever or officers in the in the facility, uh, and that's who train to do active shooter events. And I think that um, and what we found, and I think what uh, the training event that we ran last fall uh, was that, and we fully realized from our participants is that their systems really didn't have didn't have a organized or cogent response to how they would respond to an active shooter event in the hospital. Okay. Let me add to that. Let me add to that for just a second, Matt. Because if you think about it, uh, we've done a a we're in the process, I would say, of doing a relatively good job of training law enforcement officers and pre-hospital providers in the provision of hemorrhage control. If you look at just the the law enforcement arm of the Hartford Consensus, which has been run through the major city police chiefs association, uh, in about 42 of 70 major city chiefs cities, and those are the 40 42 of the 70 largest cities in the United States. About 200,000 law enforcement officers have been trained and equipped or in the process of being trained and equipped in hemorrhage control kits. And that, that translates into covering almost 60 million Americans. So that, that part of it, it, we're doing a better job. We're not anywhere near perfect, but we're doing better. But if you think about it, and, and there's probably mostly trauma surgeons listening to this trauma cast, if this were to happen in your hospital and you had injured people on one of your regular wards, not your ICU, not your resuscitation area, nothing like that, but they're just on a regular ward, a disgruntled patient or family member comes in and shoots several people, the ward gets locked down and they're barricaded, who provides hemorrhage control on that ward? If it's anything like Parkland, you've got floor nurses who do lots of great things every day, but what they don't do is primary hemorrhage control. They don't have the training or the equipment to do that. So all of a sudden, what Ahmad said was exactly right. Your hospital, police department, or security force may have a great response plan, but all of a sudden when it really comes to the provision of life-saving care, people assume just because we're inside a hospital, you're all good. But sometimes that hospital ward is as austere as the Sahara Desert or wherever else when you cut off access to the rest of the hospital. So, Ahmad, you, you had the opportunity to uh, run the, the simulation training uh, of an active shooter scenario with a bunch of uh, healthcare providers, nurses, and doctors. Um, what about watching them perform in those scenarios uh, surprised you, or didn't you expect? I think uh, so. Uh, a quick background that on on the on the training scenario. This was at a, a regional uh, trauma consortium, uh, primarily attended by uh, by uh, uh, by nursing and first responders, uh, but also by by a few a few physicians in the system. 
And the, the interesting observation in, in running the scenario, a quick background on the scenario, we created a, a scenario where a hospital had laid off 500 employees and this was a, this was a disgruntled, this was a disgruntled employee, um, in search of, uh, in search of the, um, uh, of their, of their supervisor. Um, and that was the, that was the scenario. So we, we created on a ward, uh, there was only one route of egress, um, as, you know, con- due to construction or otherwise. So, and we did actually put it in an ICU, but we put it in a, in a, uh, in a coronary ICU. So it wasn't, wasn't set up for exact, for exactly those purposes for hemorrhage control and otherwise, um, where they had, had unstable patients at shift change. So there was a lot of stuff going on and then this, and this, uh, active shooter, uh, enters to be able to, you know, and, uh, and then shoots the charge nurse basically and as part of the active shooter process. Uh, the interest, the, the interesting observations were this was a, this was connected to the, to the keynote address at the, at the trauma symposium, which was response to act, to this active shooter, uh, scenario following a mantra of, of run, hide, and fight as a, as kind of the basics in terms of the response, uh, in an environment where the idea is to get away from the shooter, uh, be able to hide and then put that, and as last option to engage or fight, uh, if you're, if you're an unarmed, uh, lay person in that environment. And so we, we applied those principles and interestingly enough, there was a, without the ability to run, uh, they, they did in fact hide, they continued to take care of their patients. Um, and then eventually, eventually the, the threat was neutralized by an implanted police officer who was in the break room. But the idea was to see what the response would be. And it varied from, from fear. Uh, and we had, we had folks that absolutely petrified and paralyzed by, by the simulation, uh, down to first, uh, first responders who responded to the, to the charge nurse, uh, dragged her to safety, applied a tourniquet. It was an impressive, uh, impressive spectrum of response. All right, so uh, uh, Levi or Dave, we'll let you jump in if you have any questions. Yeah, I guess my questions would be based on the the triage scenarios. What and Dr. Eastman as well. Uh, what are are there? Should we be stocking all of our floors after appropriate education with you know combat gauze with cat tourniquets? And- yeah, and I don't think it's going over the top at all. I mean, I think you have to be judicious about how you do it because there is an expense associated with that. But if you look at, I mean, there are institutions that are already doing that. The Hartford Hospital is one, uh, obviously ground zero for the Hartford consensus. But the Hartford Hospital has pre-staged hemorrhage control kits uh, throughout the facility, sort of co-locating them in the areas that there are AED or AEDs or emergency equipment. Uh, you know, th- there is going to be a large push coming out of very high levels of the federal government very soon about a about the idea, and I think we'll talk about this some more as we move into the Harper Consensus part of the discussion, but the idea of a public access hemorrhage control program. Those ideas, the idea that you can train the lay public to do things that were previously unheard of from a medical standpoint is exactly what people are talking about applying now. So it won't just be the hospital ward that needs to have some combat gauze and a a few tourniquets. I think you're going to see these in a lot of other public spaces. In fact, just to bring that message all the way home, uh, the city of Dallas right now is in the process of putting – uh, public access hemorrhage control kits in all of our large public occupancy buildings. So, so, Alex, what is a hemorrhage control kit? What should be in it? Yeah, so, so two very good questions. So I think you, you, this is where you sort of need to fall back on, on making some very, very responsible decisions. And so the kits that we issue to every Dallas police officer right now uh, contain three core items. One of those is a uh, tactical Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care approved tourniquet. So we use the soft key wide. But either the soft T wide or the cat, 
The next thing they have is a role of, of, of combat cause. And the reason is there are wounds that are not amenable to tourniquet placement where the combat cause is very effective. So we actually teach these officers how to pack wounds, where to use that combat cause, how to use it, and show them uh, how effective it is. And so they've really been empowered, and we've seen some uses. In fact, we've had police officers put combat cause into other wounded police officers in the city. And the last thing, I think it's good to have some sort of pressure bandage, and we use the Olay's bandage. How many you, you buy and where you put them is a matter of great debate at the moment. Uh, I think if you look at subsequent Boston marathons so the, since the bombing, they've pre-staged uh, hemorrhage control kits with a significant amount of hemorrhage control equipment along the route. Um, other buildings are choosing, you know, other officers are choosing to have some but not a ton. So I, I don't think there's any uh, good guidance. I think you have to look at the building, the how many people are in it, the occupancy and the threat level, and then sort of help make a, a best educated guess. Quick, quick question here, um, Alex, uh, and what do you think is the best way to train some of these individuals? There's sort of uh, this gray zone where I know that the uh, uh, the NAEMT and the PHDLS folks have put together the bleeding control course, and, and that's great for sort of the lay provider or maybe the average uh, patrol officer. What about uh, specifically speaking about nursing staff in the hospital? So we actually we actually don't know uh, what the optimal training regimen is. I will tell you that I think some groups, I know Dave King in Boston is actually looking at this scientifically, which will give us some really good um, information once we get that, that those results out. But I'll tell you my, my personal bias, which is based on training, you know, thousands of first responders over the last, you know, a nearly decade, is that, look, when we first started doing this, uh, the, the training course was two days long. You know, and then all of a sudden we realized, like, hey, wait a minute, it doesn't take two days to figure this out. This and so we've steadily been trimming back and trimming back the amount of training. So the BCON course, you know, the BCON course is designed to be delivered in two hours. Um, I, I think, you know, somewhere in the two to four hour range is probably the optimal time it takes to uh, learn the equipment, learn the indications, get familiar, do some hands-on training, and then a couple of scenarios, and then you're out the door. We've got to resist the temptation to make it more complicated than it needs to be. So, Ahmad, you, you focused a lot on, obviously, training and, and using simulation. Uh, where are we in, in the simulation field in uh, training for these events? Absolutely, Matt. I think a couple of things with regard to chronicity for training. We, what we do observe in, in, our, in our combat medics and uh, do, get, do get this training, and we do, know, we do note that even though it seems like a simple psychomotor skill, uh, it is perishable as, as are many other skills. And so um, what, at about the one-year mark or so is where we start seeing an increased amount of time uh, and a lack of, of, of precision and speed in applying the tourniquet and, and where refresher training is, is, uh, is important. And so most of our units come through annually and, and requirements really every other year uh, to be able to do and assess training, and part of that is application of a cat tourniquet. Uh, but units frequently tra train at least annually on the application of, uh, of those tourniquets. Um, with regard to simulation the, the, and the simulators that are available, I think also I think it's also very important that we can put up a tourniquet, we can put them up on each other uh, just for the, the, you know, in terms of buddy training. But there's some very good simulators out there that, that actually have hemorrhage, have traumatic amputations, uh, actually move, kind of have a bionic-type uh, movement, adding a, a significant degree of realism to the scenario. And the tourniquet has to be applied with sufficient pressure to occlude, you know, 90 to 100 millimeter of mercury pressure. Uh, if the tourniquet is not applied appropriately, the bleeding doesn't stop. And I think that that's the type of feedback and the type of training hands-on 
that you know if it's not it can be done but if it's not done correctly it is it's in it's an ineffective intervention and so that's what we focus our medics on in terms of their in terms of their tourniquet training do you guys think rehearsing these scenarios in your hospital that they should be uh within the same mass casualty plan that most places have already or they should they be a completely separate um like review process and going through the you know the sequence of events. Yeah, so I mean, I think the the the, the casualty, the mass casualty portion of the plan uh, is is um, you know can can flow and fit with your other all hazards plan. But but in terms of the hospital response, you know, you absolutely have to have a separate policy and exercise that plan and policy for an active shooter because the response is not like anything else we do in the hospital. You know, the the flooding of the facility with armed law enforcement officers who are not stopping to address the wounded but instead going to seek out uh, wherever this problem is, is something that will be unsightly for most healthcare providers that have never seen anything like that and who may get a gun pointed at them and, and given commands to do things they don't usually do in the hospital. And, and would you involve those, like your local police department and fire department, to participate in those? To would, Is that of benefit or do you just use your own, you know, players to act as those agents to carry out those roles. Yeah, I mean I think I think the better the, the more inclusive you can be, the better your exercise is going to be. So so uh to Ahmad first and then to Alex. Uh so so I'm working in a hospital and there's an active shooter event. Uh tell me what what your top two or three, you know, brief pieces of advice would be to uh maximizing the chance for my survival and, and the others around me. Excellent. Yeah, I think these uh, interesting lessons learned uh, that came out of our, our AAR and debriefing comments from the, uh, from the uh, trauma symposium uh, training, uh, one was the one was the that healthcare providers were really torn between the lives of their patient and their lives. Um, and, and the the discussion was, well, would we would we try to evacuate our patient, um, you know, in a, in a hospital ward setting or or in an, even an ICU setting? Uh, and, and that that led to a very interesting discussion with you know the where you're going to take them to an elevator uh, to an elevator hold you know holding area where they're where now they're you've got a bundled set of targets for a potential active shooter. So that was a that was a um, an interesting discussion point and one that healthcare providers uh, absolutely found foreign that they would have to abandon their patients to to save themselves. Uh, it was a real eye-opening experience. But I think if, in terms of the lessons in surviving, uh, goes back to goes back to the principles that fo- that really follow and have been espoused in, in terms of response for active shooter events, which is get out of the threat zone. If you can't get out of threat zone, hide and barricade, and, and as a last resort, uh, you know, in an unarmed setting, is fight and engage. And part of also our discussion is what are what are the what are the items that are available in in a hospital setting that you can use and, and weaponize to potentially protect yourself. Uh, oxygen canisters, um, IV needles, other things can be used uh, to potentially engage and you know engage and protect yourself if that's the last option. All right, Alex. Yeah, I mean, in institutions that have faced you hear you know, the, the classic teaching by uh, the active shooter group at DHS, which has gotten a lot of play nationwide, is run, hide, fight. But, but quite simply, these, these uh, nurses and, and healthcare workers are very reluctant to abandon their patients, even when their own personal safety is, is threatened. And so what we've really focused on is giving those healthcare providers the tools they need uh, to, to focus on keeping themselves safe. And, and in the um, in the Code Silver program, which is Parkland's active shooter program, 
uh, they've actually taken this to the Joint Commission, and, and the, the model programs are, are based on this. We actually train the ward staff to, to and equip them with specialized equipment designed to harden and barricade the ward to prevent the shooter from actually coming into this into that area. Because if you think about it, you know these these are catastrophic for the temporarily catastrophic for the operations of the healthcare institution, but very rarely. Uh, at least, knock on wood, we haven't seen a coordinated multi-attacker attack on a healthcare facility in the United States. So it's one guy; he can't be in all parts of the building, or two shooters, whatever, he can't be in all parts of the building at the same time. So in the unaffected areas, uh, those wards get locked and barricaded, and basically make it a challenge for the shooter to come through the ward doors, uh, and then basically they will move on to another softer target. What about where I can go to train in the weaponization yeah. of medical supplies? That sounds pretty pretty fun. A lot of the ideas and a lot of the thoughts came from came from right at right the groups that were contemplating what they would do because they never really had gone that far in terms of what what their response would be and that's that was really the intent of that simulation was to be a thought provoking and a system uh, evoking response so that that they go back to their hospital systems. Yeah, and that's that's, that's interesting. I think uh, you know especially if you talk to persons versed in in combat tactics and self defense or martial arts. And, and they'll tell you, you know, if you're in close quarters with somebody with a, a gun, you're probably better off closing the distance and engaging them than, than trying to run. Uh, what do you think about that, Alex? You get to the point where, I mean, you're you're faced with that. I mean, I think, you know, you've got to do what you your training and knowledge uh, has trained you to do. And if you don't have any, then trying to go in and sort of attack this attacker uh, is going to be a challenge for you. That's why... Uh, the first of these um, active shooter training videos that I actually saw it, it train people to sort of improvise weapons uh, actually came out of the university law enforcement community. The University of Wisconsin uh, generated a great video that, that went widely through the the academic and university communities about, you know, sort of what to do if the you've run, you've, you've hidden, you've barricaded your classroom door, but the assailant still gets through the door. I mean, they, they went into some detail about, uh, exactly what what Ahmad said, you know, getting things off the wall, a fire extinguisher, a desk chair, a le- I mean, they, they, you know, doing anything you possibly can to disrupt the attacker. Do they do they stress in those videos if you have a group of people, if you're in a room and the you know the intruder comes in, that it's it should be more of a team attack instead of letting one person you know kind of soldier up and be the one to do the deed? Is that is I that mean, I don't gun? think that they, they don't get into that specific, uh, you know, that degree of specifics in terms of group versus individual tactics. But I mean, if you're the guy who's chosen to soldier up and a bunch of people are standing there watching, I would uh I would not so gently encourage them to come Correct. participate in the yeah. action. Uh I mean uh, you know, hopefully uh you know, I think and we've seen this um in the airline industry now, you know, before these guys on September eleventh were able to get to the cockpit and get in and all that. I mean now you know, you've seen uh, there have been several examples on airplanes in the United States where someone starts to act a fool and gets jacked by 15 passengers. You know. <laughs> okay, so so the, we're in an active shooter scenario, and the uh, the initial law enforcement team has arrived uh, and has entered. Uh, what should we be doing? Uh, you know, should we be getting up, uh, directing them, or trying to help? Should we be staying on the ground? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so I think the, the the key is to to understand a couple of things about that, and really, uh, the run hide flight video um, that was produced in Houston, but again, it was a DHS project. 
um, really does a pretty good job of introducing what that looks like. Um, if you've never seen one of these or never been a participant in one, I mean, this is a very dynamic, aggressive response by law enforcement. So the, the key thing, I think, that, that anyone that's a bystander that's still present, you know, in one of these situations or a victim is to do exactly what the responding law enforcement officers tell you to do. If they tell you to get up and move, then you need to get up and move. If they tell you to get on the ground and stay still, you need to get on the ground and stay still because different jurisdictions handle this differently, and so the all sort of tactics are local. And so you, you may get told any of the above. I mean, there will be some places where everyone will get handcuffed and treated as a suspect until we can figure out who, in fact, is the shooter. Because um, in some of these events, you know, the, the shooter has tried to disguise themselves as a victim and be escorted out of the building with the rest of the victims and then headed on his, merry, his or her merry way. So I think you, the key thing is to, number one, understand that, that the first responding law enforcement officers are there to stop the threat. Uh, and, and really uh, address the problem, and that may mean uh, doing something that's very unnatural for most of us, which is stepping over people that are wounded to go address the threat. Even for me, uh, as a trauma surgeon and a law enforcement officer, uh, as I, you know, and driving around the city of Dallas, if I'm the first responder or in the first wave of responders to an active shooter event, the, the, sometimes the best way to save the most number of lives is to go take care of the problem and prevent further murdering from occur from occurring. And would it be safe to assume that do not speak unless spoken to? Well, I mean, I think if you've got information that's useful, I mean, the, the police officers are going to want to know uh, where – if you have information about where the shooter is or shooters are, then that, that's information that the responding officers are going to want to know. I mean, you know, obviously people are going to be under stress, and, and as law enforcement officers be trained for this, I mean, you're going to get a whole host of responses as you enter this facility. And, and professional police officers in the United States um, understand that now. Uh, the, the way that we respond to the active shooter has changed wholeheartedly over the last decade from uh, learning what happened at Columbine, which really changed our tactics, to what we do now. Um, uh, so, so you know, I, I don't say you have to sort of lay there silently, but, you know, you want to be a, be a help rather than a hindrance, I think is good advice. Yeah, but especially, I think that point that, that they're there to neutralize the threat is important, and they're not there to render first aid. Uh, they're going to run right by, and, and they're going to be focused on that threat. Uh, so, Ahmad, have you, have you uh, included uh, that part of the scenario in this training of the you know the the initial uh, police response and and how the uh, uh, participants should react? Yeah, just for resourcing, we had one we had one police responder, but we were able to we were able to use that. And the tendency was for folks on the the, the healthcare providers in particular were, were to flock towards that healthcare provider. Um, and and you know, in, in, in terms of looking for safety, and actually was ended you up mean, being you mean flock flock toward the police officer. Correct. Yeah. So okay. that that responder is that you they go, they move towards the police officer who you know is is you know kind of the symbol of safety when in fact it could encumber they were able to res, the ability to respond to the active shooters. So I think I think I think Alex's points are exactly right. Is that they listen to listen to the instructions from police, which may be uh, which may be counterintuitive uh, to you know I you know to I to stay down potentially not move out or treat a treat a, a patient if they're in a threat zone, um, not move towards the the responders, um, because, one because they can be viewed as a potential threat, and two can encumber the response of, of the uh, of, of law enforcement. Uh, those were a couple of very important points that came out in our debriefing, and that was with, just with a single police officer, uh, simulated police officer responding. If you look at um, 
you listen to Ken Maddox talk about, and they had a it wasn't really an active shooter. They had a murder suicide in the pharmacy at Ben Top. The 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 chief executive of the hospital, sort of when this occurred, ran out of his office and ran towards the pharmacy to sort of see what I guess what was going on, you know. And, and that is exactly the wrong thing in an active shooter, uh, unless you are a professional responder to this. Uh, you know that 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 is this is not the kind of thing that you want to run towards. But it, but also in Texas, all of your administrators are armed, so you want them you want them running to the scene, right? Not yet, but if you listen to our legislature, they may they may soon be. So, so, uh, so let's let's uh, move on because we wrap up in about ten minutes. Uh, let, let's move on to the Hartford Consensus Conference. Uh, this obviously has generated a lot of interest, and Alex, I know you've been you've been one of the key members uh, of that conference. So uh, if you could real quickly just uh, explain to people what the Hartford Consensus Conference is, uh, and, uh, and and there's been two of them so far, I believe. And, and, and what, Actually, we just, has... completed the, yeah, we just completed the third. Okay, so, great. Um, yeah, so the Hartford Consensus was uh, the idea that emerged after uh, Sandy Hook and, and actually right before the Boston bombing um, was – the American College of Surgeons and the FBI uh, decided that we had to convene a panel of, of subject matter experts to um, help a, a address some novel ways to improve survivability from active shooter and intentional mass casualty events in the United States. And so the, the first Hartford Consensus, where the threat um, acronym was developed uh, and the idea of the initial response uh, to these, you know, taking a whole bunch of good ideas and synthesizing them into a neat package for um, active shooter response in the United States uh, was what the first Hartford Consensus meeting was about. Uh, the second meeting really focused on the detailed steps in terms of implementation in the pre-hospital uh, community, both law enforcement and uh, more traditional emergency medical providers like firefighters and paramedics. And then, as we've seen, um, as we've studied these events in more detail, uh, and particularly in the Aurora movie theater shooting, you know, there are a lot of people who uh, become what, what, have, what you know, a lot of people used to call bystanders, but really are, are more what end up being immediate responders. They are there at the point of wounding. You know, about 80% of people will, will flee, but there's a significant portion, uh, about one in five, who will stay and turn and try to help their their fellow man or woman who's injured, and so you know it's been a it's been an awesome group and an awesome process. I'm, I'm honored to be uh, there with some real legends in our business. Uh, I got to go representing the Major City Chiefs Association, um, but but again, it, it's been a it's been a great group to be a part of, and I think it's really helped um, take nothing that is really um, you know sort of I mean scientifically that novel nobody's going to win the the Nobel Prize uh, from the Harper Consensus, but it's really taken. Um, the group of experts and and allowed them to put and, and bring together some very um, good ideas and put them in a in a uh, in a package that's easily applicable and that people across the spectrum of emergency response from law enforcement officer to trauma surgeon and everyone in between can really understand what um, the, the key steps to take in the first response to these are. So. It's been a great group so far. So, so Ahmad, obviously, uh, a couple of these high-profile events have happened on military facilities uh, and against service members. 
are, are there any um, you know major differences or, or military specific issues that we need uh, to address in, in terms of the risk of these events or how to respond to them and how we prepare for them? Well, I think from a military specific perspective, the weaponry frequently or or certainly can be that uh, that military personnel have access to, whether it be explosives, grenades, and the like, or high or high powered weapons, certainly offer a different mechanism of wounding. Um, but I think the response remains essentially the same in that in that that immediate hemorrhage control. Unfortunately, most uh, military personnel, whether they be whether they be infantrymen or administrative folks, have at least this basic training on on hemorrhage control, tourniquet application, and buddy. Aid. Um, I think that that basic type training um, is 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 basically the standard. The ability to provide that level of buddy aid um, is is something that if we can expand out to the to the lay public would be you know would be a, a significant you know if you will a combat multiplier in our ability to save lives. Yeah, Mattis, you, you know look at the Fort Hood, the first Fort Hood shooting. You know the the police officer who was injured, uh, Kimberly Lonely, was injured in a in a based in a building full of doctors. Right, I mean, it's a military medical processing facility, so there were tons of doctors in the building, and I love the fact that that she was saved by by a, a, a combat medic with a combat application tourniquet. I mean, it's really just that it shows you that you know the military has really led the way, and all the rest of us are sort of following and trying to bring it along. The military has led the way in demonstrating that the more people you train in hammer control, the better off your outcomes are going to be. Um, certainly, some of that data has been published. If you look at the um, experience from the 75th Ranger Regiment, you know, they were sort of a, the, one of the first military units to, to make hemorrhage control training, you know, the responsibility of everybody from the commanding general to the guy who cooked lunch, um, and, and were able to really reduce the, the preventable death rate from, you know, somewhere in the 20s down to in the single digit. So uh, uh, have you guys implemented any of this uh, training for active shooter scenarios or, or even the, the BCON course at your institutions? No, in, in terms of K at Kentucky, we we have not done a, you know, hospital-wide, <clears throat> excuse me, but we've done it on our local, uh, you know, surgical base, like in M&M and Grand Rounds conferences, kind of gone over it for the for the surgeons in the room, but not from the whole level. Sure. How about you, David? Are you still on the line? I am. Yeah. I actually, that was going to be one of my questions. Is um, I think there's a reluctance on uh, part of some hospital administrations about uh, running these active shooter drills because it's going to be a disturbance to you know normal business and all that kind of stuff. And I was wondering if there was any advice that either Ahmad or Alex you had about how to get uh, buy-in from uh, hospital leadership in terms of running these drills. Uh, making them realistic as possible as, as they do represent sort of a disruption. And potentially, they, they could also be worried about the public's image and things like that. So uh, any advice on those lines would be appreciated. Well, there, I just, yeah, uh, first, just personal experience from running, having run the scenario recently is that it was an eye-opener for the administrators that were there uh, and, and some of the nursing leadership that were there, and they realized that they didn't have a cogent or a rehearsed response. And I don't think I think that the most the, the most uh, effective way to build that support is put put folks in the in these type of experiences environments in a simulated setting to realize that they really need a really need a rehear organized rehearsed response uh, and it's and it's worth it's worth the time and the effort to do it just because of the potential um, uh, effect of of an active shooter. Yeah, and I would say the way to make that argument is there's nothing more disruptive than handling one of these situations poorly. Uh, in your institution, it will be a a, a a crippling event for 
uh, day to days uh, if that occurs. And so, you know, I, I think one of the things that's interesting is that there, there's a wide spectrum of how you can do these exercises. But if you're really going to bring first responders uh, into the hospital and make it that detailed, then I think you absolutely are, have to work with your local first responder community, both police and fire, who are used to conducting realistic training exercises in public buildings all the time. So on the Dallas Police SWAT team, we, we get uh, to train in a, a variety of settings from, you know, uh, big shopping malls to elementary school and everything in between. And so your local law enforcement agency is going to be well-versed in how to conduct uh, realistic and, most importantly, safe training uh, in an environment that may or may not be occupied. Yeah, and, and and I think, Alex, you bring up a great point about the 75th Ranger Regiment and looking at what they did. And and I think you can see what it took was a physician champion, uh, who was Russ Cotwell, who's, who said – Everyone needs to be trained in this and made the commander, who's the administrator, aware of the issue. And then the commander needs to buy in and say, hemorrhage control or, you know, survivability is my my priority. Uh, and, and the results, I mean, clear, clear better results than, you know, most of the other units in the military. Uh, and I think that's our that's our job as trauma surgeons is to be those physician champions and be convincing uh, those administrators that need convincing. Is there uh, has there been discussion in terms of the Hartford consensus and how how distal into the community we take this education? Like meaning going as morbid as it sounds, like going to elementary schools and high schools and showing them this equipment and you know kind of going through the fundamentals. Are those are you know in high risk areas such as schools or malls and things like that? Are yeah, those so, things that are discussed? So I don't think that sounds morbid at all. I think it sounds realistic. Uh, and I, and there's no – those things have definitely been discussed. Um, I've, I uh, was called to a meeting in Washington of some a very unique group of leaders from a cross-section of, of American life and business with everybody from the National Educators Association to the NCAA to Hollywood to – I mean, all kinds of folks to try to get the message standardized across the board from – you know, from the movies to the elementary school and everything in between uh, to, to get this information out there. Because really, I think this has to become like, and the, the, the Hartford consensus really is contributing to what you see in other, uh, and what you're going to see in other settings, which is that this really has to, to be effective, has to be to do exactly what Matt just said and what we described with the Rangers, is it's got to be pushed out wide to everybody uh, to really achieve maximum effectiveness. So I think you'll see it in a variety of settings. Now, how, how low you push it, whether you push it to elementary schools and stuff like that, I don't know that there's a, necessarily a an answer to that yet. But I think in the coming months, uh, you're going to see a large push to make this a lot more common of a skill than it is today. So, so Alex, you mentioned uh, the threat acronym. Probably not all of our listeners even know what that is. So what, what does uh, the threat stand for? Yeah, so, so threat basically describes the, the steps that need to be taken. Uh, to uh, maximize survival survival from an active shooter. And so the threat acronym stands for threat, so hemorrhage control, rapid extrication, assessment, and treatment. And, th- and those are the things that need to, to occur uh, right away um, and, and sort of occur relatively simultaneously to maximize survival. That's how um, first responders, law enforcement officers, fire EMS are training now to sort of bring those steps much closer together than they ever have been. You know, traditional response to the active shooter occurred 
in a three-phase uh, approach, you know, sort of a law enforcement phase, a fire rescue EMS phase, and then a community recovery phase. We've learned our lessons over and over again that, that those things to, to really maximize survival can't occur in, in those sort of three segmented phases. Things have to be brought much closer together. And groups like um, uh, there's a number of groups around the United States that are, are presently trying to uh, develop best practices about how law enforcement and fire rescue and EMS respond together to these uh, to deliver, you know, um, threat neutralization capabilities and medical care as quickly as possible. All right. Well, uh, I think we're going to have to wrap it up, guys. So uh, I'm just going to ask each of you, you know, for any uh, any final uh, message or, or take-home point that you want to get out there. Uh, we'll start with you, Ahmad. I think the uh, the one take home point is that uh, is that training is essential, and I think integrated training on, on these types of events is just as important as as I think someone referenced before the bloodborne pathogens and the like. Uh, this is this is the type of training, and the, as the occurrence of these type of events or increases across the country, our ability to respond is going to be predicated. Our ability to respond well is going to be predicated on how we train to respond to it. Alex, yeah, Matt, I would say that if these discussions are not occurring in your community in your trauma center that, that it's incumbent upon you as the, the trauma leader in the community and the trauma surgeon has retained that role in every community I've worked and visited in. It's incumbent upon you to go and be the bridge and be the person who builds the and starts the discussion between uh, the law enforcement agency and the fire rescue EMS providers because as trauma surgeons, I think we understand that the ideas of hemorrhage control, those guys understand how to respond to the active shooter, and by marrying those two together, uh, you're going to make your community a much more safe place to live. All right, guys. Well, well, thanks a lot for talking with us. Great information. Sounds great. Yep. Thanks, man. All right. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.